Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, and welcome to The Scramble. The Scramble is what we do here, if you're kind of new to the Colin McEnroe Show. We do this on Mondays. We invented it a few years ago because we decided over the weekend so many things happen. It kind of doesn't make sense to have an elaborately planned show on Monday where you've booked all the guests, you know, a week ahead of time or something. Um, So we thought of this before the world became so completely chaotic as to absolutely necessitate it. (laughs) Back when the world was a saner place, it still struck us as, you know, a good idea to have quite a bit of flexibility on Mondays. Now, of course, there's no way around it. Today on the show, uh, we'll be talking uh, about several different uh, levels of anxiety, uh, depending on uh, who you are and what you worry the most about. Right now, in just a second, we're going to talk about the Iran deal. Uh, Before we do that, though, uh, we are going to, I mean, after we do that, (laughs) I had a very difficult weekend. It was my birthday yesterday, and my favorite football player broke his collarbone. Uh, And actually, that will come up in the final segment. We are going to talk not about that exactly, but about um, the status of uh, of this kind of protracted controversy within the NFL. Uh, Its latest manifestation has been that Colin Kaepernick, the player who arguably got the ball rolling uh, quite a ways ago, uh, is now convinced that the NFL teams and their owners are colluding against him, refusing him employment. Uh, He has filed a lawsuit uh, on that. We'll talk about that and some of the issues that kind of swirl around that. That'll be the final segment today. I'm working backwards now uh, in the middle segment. We're going to be talking about what I regard as the most under-understood aspect of 2016. And I count myself among those people who under-understand it. Um, and, And that is the role that data played, uh, how data got into the hands, apparently, of Russian hackers, where that data came from. And we don't have a lot of answers to it. I mean, one reason it's under-understood is just because a lot of us aren't really good at understanding this kind of thing. I mean, it requires learning a whole new subset of, uh, of information. Uh, but it's also under-understood because we don't know what happened. <laughs> which is often an impediment to understanding things. Anyway, it turns out that there's um, a guy who's figured out that because of a little quirk in the way one of these data companies, uh, perhaps the most ominous of these data companies, was set up, uh, it is possible to try to access some answers to that question through British law and in British courts. So you'll hear about that. But we are going to begin with the Iran deal, the status of the Iran deal. Um, As most of you know, uh, over the last uh, four days or so, President Trump has um, made the Iran deal a very confusing spectacle. I think that's fair to say. Um, It's not even clear the degree to which some of his actions match up to some of his rhetoric. But here, to straighten us out on all of that uh, and also explain the consequences of the the prospective loss of such a deal uh, to Iran, to the U.S., to the world, uh, is Jeremy Pressman, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of Middle East Studies at UConn. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. So the first thing we have to try to figure out together is what exactly is being suggested. Uh, President Trump did not 
decertify this deal. Uh, he gave Congress some confusing instructions uh, about the re- sort of not wanting the reimposition of sanctions. So, so where are we? What, what, what did happen? I think it's helpful if we think of this, this issue right now in terms of three moving parts. Right? There's the actual joint <laughs> comprehensive plan of action that Iran signed with the U.S., China, Russia, Britain, France, and Germany. That's kind of the international agreement part of it. There's the responsibility on the U.S. president uh, resulting from that international deal to waive U.S. sanctions that were passed years ago to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons, because part of the agreement was as an incentive for Iran to sign that agreement was we would waive some of those sanctions, for instance, on oil exports. So that's the second piece. And then third, in 2015, same year as the deal, uh, Congress passed the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act. And because Congress, as we remember, wasn't happy with this whole agreement. And as part of that specific piece of legislation, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, the President of the United States has to certify, essentially speaking to Congress, and say that um, right now I believe that us suspending sanctions is kind of the appropriate and proportionate move that we should be taking right now uh, as a result of Iran's behavior. So what, what President Trump said is, I'm not going to certify that specific piece of legislation right now that says that these measures are appropriate because of all these bad things I'm going to tell you that Iran has been doing for decades, but I am not right now going to pull the United States out of the JCPOA, that international deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I'm going to let Congress, you figure this out right now, and he has some suggestions about what they should do, and they have some ideas, but you figure it out, and then we'll see. If you don't figure it out, then maybe I'll have to take us out of that international deal. So let's uh, hear a little bit of the magic of President Trump and his words. The Iranian regime has committed multiple violations of the agreement. For example, on two separate occasions, they have exceeded the limit of 130 metric tons of heavy water. Until recently, the Iranian regime has also failed to meet our expectations in its operation of advanced centrifuges. The Iranian regime has also intimidated international inspectors into not using the full inspection authorities that the agreement calls for. And now, you know, Jeremy, you're not on the ground over there. I'm not on the ground over there. But that kind of it doesn't sit well with what the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, is saying about this, right? They're basically, basically saying that the dismantling of centrifuges is happening um, and that basically the deal's working. Absolutely. Um, I think in a larger context, everybody is lining up on one side on this in terms of what's happening on the ground and president trump is largely alone with some supporters in the united states the the international atomic energy agency all of the us's european allies the israeli security community or large parts of the israeli security community even many members of trump's administration like the secretary of defense or the uh, the military chief of staff are saying iran is basically abiding by the agreement the agreement is working and even those specific examples that the president gives let's leave aside the intimidation i'm not uh, i'm not sure about that one mm-hmm. but some of the other examples i think are actually examples that the agreement's working mm-hmm. right in other words iran uh, slightly stepped over the line maybe intentionally maybe as a way to test you know how far could they go and the agreement worked the iaea inspectors noticed it they um, they put a spotlight on it, and Iran was forced to backtrack, for instance, on the on the heavy water and get back under compliance. So, I, I think to me, missteps maybe they're testing us. Maybe Iran is testing the international community. But if the things are corrected, then to me that tells me an agreement is working. 
You know, as we look at the Trump administration's attitude um, towards all this, and it's not just Trump, and there's also this kind of subplot that maybe Nikki Haley is the person really sort of pushing decertification or um, pushing reimposition of sanctions to prove her you know, warlikeness or something so that come the day she might be Secretary of State. But the existing Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, towards the end of September, kind of got into it uh, with Javad Zarif, his counterpart uh, in Iran. And, and it seemed as though in that conversation, uh, what Tillerson was saying, and again, just as you described, you know, maybe Iran sticking its toe over the line, it was difficult to tell what Tillerson's strategy was here. But they kind of got into it over the deal. But Tillerson just started talking about historic stuff going back to the 1970s, which, of course, is what Iranians typically do, right. <laughs> saying, you guys have been jerking us around for decades now. Yes, we're sick of you. Uh, Tillerson was kind of doing that, too, not making it about heavy water or centrifuges, but making it about, well, you guys, you know, you back Hezbollah, you're just a lot of trouble. You know, why shouldn't I have a really rotten attitude about you? Right. I mean, my assumption is that Tillerson recognizes the the near unit again, excluding President Trump, but the near unanimity of close observers, including the IEA, but many others, that the agreement is working and Iran is is abiding by the agreement. So, if that's the case, what are you left with? Well, of course, you can bring up historical grievances, which there are many and and many legitimate ones. You can bring up other issues that weren't meant to be covered by the agreement in the first place, but you can bring them up anyway, like uh, Iranian support for terrorism obviously human rights violations in Iran, Iran mucking about in and supporting uh, various countries, uh, various enemies of the United States in the Middle East. So, so you, you can use other, uh, other material, but you don't have a lot to work with on the nuclear question itself because we, we keep coming back to this point that the agreement is, is working. Right. And what Zarif said at the time was, look, we agreed to set all of those other issues aside and work on this. Uh, in other words, I, I, if we can agree that there's sort of a mutual goal here uh, of all the nations that you just may, named, plus Iran thinking, well, what are the alternatives? We make a deal about this uh, and, and we get something out of it. We get some of the money back that's been frozen, et cetera. Or we go to war about the fact that we've got a nuclear program and no, that nobody wants us to have. Or Iran becomes a nuclear power a la North Korea, and then we spent a lot of sleepless nights worrying about what that means. Uh, I mean, those would seem to be the three possibilities yeah. here. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say, and there's, there's a certain irony here, which is, if you remember at the time you know, of the agreement and, and when it was being negotiated and those intense high-level negotiations, 2013, 14, 15, when we, when we moved towards the agreement, um, what some critics charged was that the Obama administration was just using the agreement over nuclear issues as a facade for a fundamental realignment in which the United States would bring itself close to Iran. And, and critics at the time said that was, that was a bad thing that would happen, and the, US was, the Obama administration wanted to abandon traditional U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and, and maybe Israel and, and, and others. Um, ironically, now it's many of those same critics who are saying, you didn't deal with everything, you didn't fundamentally change the U.S.-Iranian relationship and solve everything, human rights, terrorism, uh, different disagreements about Syria, Yemen, Iraq. You know, every, in other words, you didn't fundamentally realign our relationship with Iran. So I'm not sure you know, which way would have been, they would have been able to satisfy their critics. Right. And, and meanwhile, what you have also here, particularly in this moment of confusion, and even more so, should the most extreme anti-JCPOA elements in Congress ultimately, ultimately manage to get reimposition of sanctions or something through is 
it seems to me a sign not only to Iran, but to everybody, and certainly to Britain, France, China, Russia, and Germany that went in with us on with us on this deal, that the United States doesn't stay in deals. It doesn't bode well for negotiating with North Korea or anybody else. Right, which is a, a peculiar position to take. First of all, it's peculiar because of exactly what you're saying. We have this massive security problem on the Korean Peninsula in which uh, we need the support and, and, and we need to work together with other countries to solve it, uh, not the least North Korea, South Korea, and China. And, and as you said, we're sending this signal of, well, you can work with us, but we may or may not decide a couple years down the road that we, we're going to throw that in the trash can. And we much criticize legitimately the North Koreans for doing that with the 1994 agreed framework. So I think that's, that's one problem. The second thing, as I'd specifically apply it to the Iranian case is, you know, I totally agree with President Trump that there are limitations to the existing agreement, the existing Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was signed in 2015. Some of the provisions, not all, but there are some provisions that so-called sunset, right, that only last for a certain amount of time. So at a certain point, whether it's now in 2017 or two or three years from now, absolutely the United States has to push to restart multilateral diplomatic negotiations to address those changes, because otherwise Iran will be freer to make moves in, in you know, t- let's just say eight or ten years from now. But to do that, what do you have to do? You have to work with other countries. You have to work with like you can't just do it unilaterally. The reason the reason we made progress was was multilateral sanctions, not just unilateral action. Was multilateral diplomacy, not just the United States talking to Iran. So, if you're going to shred the sort of diplomatic credibility of the United States, I don't really understand how you're then going to negotiate uh, a new agreement that requires many parties to sit around a very large table. Let's, uh, Jeremy, for a moment, look at the Iranian side of this. In Iran, there's sort of the equivalent of Tom Cotton or whoever the most extreme person in the U.S. Congress is. What you have here is kind of a centrist regime that seems to have won the support of the people for in this kind of a deal, right? You've got, uh, at a time when the critique from the more extreme elements in Iran is, oh, you guys gave away the farm. You gave away too, way too much uh, in order to get what you got. Um, that particular criticism, at least in the last election in Iran, didn't seem to work. You, you have kind of what we would think would be a pretty optimal situation if what we if what we don't want are a bunch of hardliners uh, in Iran. We've got the opposite of that, right? Right. I, I mean, I think it's certainly legitimate to suggest at this point that um – undermining a negotiated agreement hurts the people who spent political capital to get that agreement, you know, enough support in Iran that, that the supreme leader and, and others were willing to support it. So, so I, I, on the theoretical level, I totally agree with you. I think it's a little bit early to, to say exactly how this is going to play around in Iran. I mean, I think some people are talking about, you know, is there going to be kind of a rally around the flag effect where Iranians who might otherwise disagree are going to all say, well, if Trump's coming after us, we Iranians are all going to stand stand together. And, um, you know, Karim Sajapur, who uh, is a, a, a senior... Um, senior scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, I thought he made a great point, you know, talking about when, when has Iran relented, right? When has Iran made concessions on this issue? When, on a basic level, when they face, when, when they have domestic disagreement about what to do and in the face of international unity about what to do. And so at a minimum right now, we have international disunity 
about what to do, which plays, to, I think, to Iran. And I think you're right to raise the question of, are we also going to create domestic unity uh, in Iran? And that's certainly something I think we'll all be watching in the next few months. Right. I mean, there's a possibility that there are people here in the United States who would rather deal with hardliners. It's easier to deal with hardliners. You don't have to make any concession to hardliners. So, Absolutely. If, um, if you don't want diplomacy, sometimes finding the other people who also don't want diplomacy, is a, it can be a, a, a useful pairing. The other thing that I think is maybe missed in all this, at least if I understood what Javad Zarif was saying at the uh, at the end of September, is that you know in Iran they're not entirely happy with the progress of this deal either. Um, they feel as though the banking sanctions have taken a long time to lift. They can't open a banking account in the UK. He said uh, they're they've been slow on things like um, allowing export licenses for Boeing and Airbus to do business in Iran. Right? They Iran doesn't feel as though it's got everything it's supposed to get under the JCPOA either. Right, right. You have these kind of conflicting narratives. I can't quite tell you. I, I figured out how to sort it out of where uh, the Trump administration, but not just the Trump administration, also many of the original critics in the Republican Party and even in the, some in the Democratic Party of the agreement, uh, you know, saying this was a windfall agreement for Iran and talking about these, you know, massive hundreds of billions, hundred billion figure that uh, Iran is if, you know, just everything's working wonderfully for them and wow, we got fleeced. Um, and that's certainly, I think, President Trump's view. And then you have this clashing Iranian narrative, as you, as you described, of there's some progress, but there's a lot of things that haven't fully been uh, fully been granted yet. Here's what I here's what I think that leads to in terms of a, a really interesting question or or scenario down the road, which is, I wonder if the the issue of the afford I'm going to jump to domestic politics for a second. The issue of the Affordable Care Act is a possible model for what might happen here. I mean, President Trump kind of kicked it to Congress and expected Congress on the Affordable Care Act to gut uh, this Obama-era policy. And in his eyes, Congress failed. And therefore, in recent days, we've seen the president take uh, action to undermine, you know, under using executive orders or other control of finances like the subsidies to undermine uh, what, what he feels, I think, where Congress failed him, even, even the Republican leadership of Congress failed him. And I wonder if that's a scenario that we should be thinking about here, that if Congress does not do anything, and we don't know, but if Congress does not put additional sanctions in place, or if whatever they do uh, in the president's eyes falls short, maybe the president will start taking steps uh, under his powers, for instance, refusing to waive sanctions that have been waived U.S. sanctions against Iran that have been waived. And if that's the case, then what does Iran do and what do our allies and, and adversaries like Russia and China do? Do they try and make this deal still work? You know, do they try, do they try and say, look, the U.S. is kind of on its own tangent right now under the Trump administration, but we're going to do the best we can? Or do they recognize that if the United States unilaterally cuts off oil exports and, and you know, um, issues about the banking system that make it difficult for Iran to get foreign financing and foreign investment, does Iran say, you know what, it's too much already what the U.S. is doing and, and we are out of this uh, agreement? So I think that's one of the scenarios we have to be uh, thinking about because this is a, a relatively mild step that President Trump took. He has much more powerful tools at his disposal. Right. Now you call that scenario interesting. There are other words to describe that scenario. Um, you know, I mean, the other possibility, uh, we're going to be wrapping up here in a second, but the other possibility is that, you know, if you're Donald Trump, I mean, crawling inside the skull of Donald Trump is always a, a fantastic voyage. But, um, 
you know, you've got these kind of simple things that seem to operate him. I mean, he doesn't like anything that Barack Obama ever did. This is a thing like that. So um, that's a reason to put a bullseye on the, the JCPOA. Um, and he campaigned kind of on this stuff. You know, he talked about the Iran deal a lot. It was probably one of his top 10 or 15 things that he would yell about on the campaign trail. So those are both reasons why he sort of has to do something or appear to do something. So the, the less stomach-churning possibility, I would assume, is, okay, so he did these things and now he can say, I mean, in a way that might work better than it did with the, AC, with the ACA stuff, that he could say, you know what, I did, I did stuff and then they didn't do anything and so we're stuck with a stupid deal. Yeah, I think I think that's a legitimate way to do it. I mean, first, let me say I appreciate your willingness to crawl inside his skull. Uh, I'm not sure I could do the same. Uh, but I, no, I mean, look, there's clearly some domestic political implications to this, and and this um, this desire to undo Obama era policy seems to play very strongly in his rhetoric, and it does play. It's not just rhetoric. It, as you say, it plays to his domestic political base. I guess I just want to close by saying. It also reflects a strategic debate that existed prior to Donald Trump in the U.S. You know, he's not a member of the establishment, but even in the establishment security and, and national security community in the United States, there was a deep division about the Iran agreement, as we all remember. And so some of the people who are against the agreement may not totally appreciate uh, President Trump's tactics right now, but there are many members of the security establishment, or some members of the security establishment in the United States, who had deep concerns about this agreement, and this may not be the perfect way for them that they wanted to address it, but he may get some support on this from, from, uh, from the establishment in that sense. All right, we're going to stop there. Uh, thanks so much to uh, Jeremy Pressman for taking time to help us understand better. Associate Professor of Political Science, Director of Middle East Studies at UConn. We'll take that break, and then we'll come back. We'll tell you another upsetting story. That's what we're going to do today is tell you upsetting stories. Aren't you grateful? to me how I went If I die in a nuclear war Will it be quickly like lightning All right, I'm going to tell you a dark, dirty secret. Um, despite the fact that I um, have, a, have this show, and despite the fact that I even teach um, journalism and media in modern American politics, I don't quite understand yet what happened in 2016 vis-a-vis -vis the Russian hack um, uh, of the election, the particular use uh, of data to direct advertising uh, on social media sites. Um, part of the reason for that is that I haven't read enough about it. Another part of the reason is even when I do read about it, my skill set, my cognitive skill set is so antiquated as to make it uh, difficult for me to uh, understand what I'm reading. And, and the last reason is because nobody understands it because we don't know the whole story yet. Um, the people are trying to find out uh, the whole story right now. Some of those people are named Robert Mueller, uh, but also uh, the Senate Intelligence Committees, uh, the FBI, lots of people trying to figure out what actually happened there. So we do know that uh, some have involved a company called uh, Cambridge Analytica. Uh, Cambridge Analytica is um, a leader among 
companies that basically uh, grab data. Hard, they harvest data and they turn it into personality profiles. Um, at one point, their CEO claimed to have somewhere between somewhere close to four to five thousand data points on every adult in the U.S. Well, that would be very useful if you wanted to get certain kinds of ideas and information in front of somebody on a repeated basis, like maybe every time they looked at the the, the home feed uh, on their Facebook page. Um, so this is something that we need to understand better. We need to understand whether Russians got to use this stuff, uh, this specific stuff or not. There's a lot of things we need uh, to know. We don't know those things. But David Carroll, our guest, an associate professor of media design at Parsons School of Design in New York, uh, figured out something about Cambridge Analytica uh, that may be very useful in finding out a little bit more, maybe a lot more about what happened. Uh, he's joining us right now. David Carroll, uh, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great, great to be here. So one thing, uh, maybe we can just elaborate a little bit, or you can elaborate a little bit on what I just said. I, I think one thing that's important to drive home here, I think when people hear about this stuff, read about this stuff, the notion of uh, of targeted advertising or targeted information uh, on, on Facebook and, and Twitter using um, carefully and elaborately worked out data points about people. I think when people who listen to public radio listen to this, they go, oh, yeah, that, like, that happened to a bunch of people who voted for Donald Trump. Yeah, the other people. That didn't happen to me. Nobody was using my profile to try to manipulate me because I would be immune to that anyway. I voted for Hillary Clinton or Jill Stein or whoever. So, I mean, maybe one thing that's important to say here here is it probably happened to just about everybody, right? Yes. Um, as far as I can tell, um, it's probably true that the company does have a very rich file on every registered voter, and they created that file by starting with the voter registration records and then by buying up as much commercial data as they could possibly get their hands on and then blending it back together and matching us back to our consumer behavior. So every credit card swipe, every website visited, every television show watched, um, all of these things are available for sale on the open market. And when they get reattached to our voter identity, it uh, becomes very powerful to, first of all, be able to create a personality profile about us, but also a political profile about us, and then they can tell if we are a very uh, likely Republican or a very unlikely Republican, and they can figure out um, our uh, propensity to participate in elections and, and so on. What we know from uh, what's been reported on the Trump campaign's d digital operation as it's known as Project Alamo, uh, which was uh, housed out of an agency in San Antonio led by Brad Parscale, um, is uh, there was an equal opportunity uh, targeting technique. That was, it was, it was e equally about finding Trump voters to be further activated, and it was also about finding uh, likely Clinton voters to be deactivated. So it was as much get out the vote as it was depress the vote. Uh, and we know from the more recent re revelations of how the Kremlin used social media uh, in similar techniques to uh, divide people against each other and lose faith in our government and our system as much as, or if not more, than uh, getting people to participate. So uh, sort of 
the idea of the attack ad has taken on um, a whole new concept to us that we have to get our head around. Right. Just to put that in practical terms, and this is wild speculation on my part, but one of the mysteries to me of the 2016 election is that as we analyze the results, one thing that we could see was that Hillary Clinton as a candidate had failed to hold on to the kind of um, turnout and voting numbers among Latinos that Barack Obama had had in 2012. What you think about that, in 2012, his opponent was Mitt Romney, who, I mean, maybe didn't have the greatest immigration policies, but he wasn't super scary and he wasn't saying horrible. He wasn't calling Mexican rapists, ra- Mexicans rapists and drug dealers. And I mean, he wasn't the kind of, uh, you know, extremophile that, that Donald Trump was. So like, why? Why wouldn't, why in that situation with that particular guy running on the Republican side, wouldn't, why wouldn't Latinos go charging to the polls? It's a mystery. But one possible answer to that mystery is what you just said, right? Maybe there was a, a, a way to figure out how to get them to not vote. Sure. Um, And if you had the right data to figure out what issues um, people will be activated by and you're able to interact with them on Facebook. So I think the the role of Facebook is very critical here in terms of, you know, we're, we're used to thinking about things in terms of television ads where it's on TV and you can ignore it and you're certainly... Um, not interacting with it, not giving feedback back to the campaign about your response to things. So the idea that very decisive voters were identified first, the, the districts that would decide the election, and then those voters were then more narrowly and more narrowly targeted, and then they were bombarded and tested constantly uh, throughout the campaign. So it's really this constant feedback loop and people aren't aware that they're even being sort of experimented on in this way they don't have a clear understanding of how they could know uh which which issues you would respond to and how they are continuing to uh, test your responses to refine them and test them further and these are all just the basic tools of direct response advertising online and they've just never been used for politics uh, at this scale before, and they've never been used for what is known as dark posts, which are ads that are so narrowly targeted that they're only seen by the people that they are targeted to. And when we can see examples of these dark posts on Facebook, we can see that the the tone and the language and the messaging of these is sort of darker and even more sinister and even more of an attack ad than what someone could get away with running on television because they're sort of protected by the narrow targeting of the audience and the fact that only those people will see the ads. And this is part of the controversy that Facebook has responded to with regards to the Russian uh, um, ads that were placed by the Internet Research Agency, the Kremlin-affiliated unit, uh, that one of the first things that Mark Zuckerberg was willing to do was um, not only provide the ads to the investigators, but also in the future um, reveal these dark ads so that people could look at them if they wanted to, in, in hopes that they would um, not get so d- d- dark, both in not being able to see them, but also the, 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 the tone that they take. It's really attack ads on steroids. 
All right. So we could talk about this. You're doing an admirable job, by the way, of making this as clear as possible. Uh, we could talk about this for a long time, but we don't really have a long time. We need to talk about the cookie that you have found in your cookie jar. Um, not the kind of cookies you got on the web, but in fact, uh, the, the Cambridge Analytica is kind of American meat hung on the bones, the skeleton of a British company, right? And, and, and explain that and what it means you can do. Sure, yes. Um, so the most surprising thing, and I think the most alarming thing about this story is that this is an international operation. Uh, so people often say, oh, the, you know, Obama did, did this. this. This is no, no different. Uh, no, the o- Obama campaign was a domestic and civilian operation. What we have here is an international and military operation. So this is very, very different. And here's how we know. Uh, you can go to Cambridge Analytica's website, and at the bottom of the page, you can request your data. And then you fill out a form with your information, and if they find your data in their database, they send you an email, and you can then um, uh, provide further proof of your identity and your residency and pay a 10-pound fee, and then you actually receive your data in an Excel spreadsheet. And what's interesting is the email that you get is from uh, um, a, a company called SCL Group, and the uh, fee that you pay goes to a company called SCL Elections. And these are British companies, um, and indeed it shows that um, U.S. voter data is actually been processed uh, in the United Kingdom. And this is also unprecedented and very disturbing that our voter files uh, have left the country by the campaign itself, and then when you look into the company SCL, this is a 20-year-old, basically, military contractor that does information operations and election management all around the world. They've done work in Latvia and Trinidad and Tobago and Kenya and Mexico, and they're currently working in India and Australia. And their general op- operation, actually, is to find ways to divide the population to manipulate voters. So it's very troubling that uh, this is actually the company behind Cambridge Analytica when you chase down the data. The good news is, is that Europeans are way ahead of Americans on figuring out how to protect um, democracy, and they have what's called data protection laws, which is different from privacy. And by the fact that our data was processed there grants us rights. And so that's why we were able to get our data when we asked for it. And as soon as we asked for it, I published it to Twitter and attracted the interest of uh, great legal minds in Britain who were very concerned with the compliance to the law. And the regulator in Britain, the Information Commissioner's Office, uh, began looking into the company's compliance to their law. And we have decided to bring suit uh, against the company to further challenge uh, their attempt to be compliant with the law. We think that the data they provided is not complete. Uh, There's much more data. In fact, as you mentioned, the chief executive of the company has claimed that he has four to 5,000 points of data. Well, I did not get that much. And I did not get my personality score and many other things that by law, they should be providing to us. Right. So we should we should stop and say one of the things that Cambridge Analytica specializes in what they call and what is 
called psychographics. So rather than just, you know, knowing that you're a 28-year-old white male living in western Pennsylvania or something, they try to figure out all kinds of things about you. They've probably purchased uh, data about your TV preferences, airline travel, shopping habits, church attendance, books you buy, magazines you got, probably even more stuff too, and harvested a ton of stuff from Facebook and Twitter. We don't really know exactly what kind of stuff they've harvested. They can kind of do that legally. They can just sort of look at it. Uh, I mean, the way anybody could look at Facebook and Twitter, uh, but in a much more systematic way. So when you got your quote-unquote data back, you didn't get all that stuff, right? You just got a, some scores they'd assigned you. Yes. Um, so I, I did not get my psychographic score as I expected. Uh, what I did get, and this can be uh, seen on my Twitter, um, is a list of political issues ranked from 1 to 10, and then my likelihood of my partisanship and uh, my propensity to participate. Um, so that's al- alarming in its own own way that it has tried to figure out the issues that I care about, and then you can see how they would be able to tailor messages that way. But like we said, it's it just can't be the full p- package of data because the company has advertised itself to have so much more. The other question that I think we all have, well, no, we don't all have it. You have it. So whenever we use stuff, um, often there are terms and conditions and there's a little blank box and we check it because it's too long, semicolon, didn't read, uh, but it says something anyway. <laughs> and it, and we're pretty sure it must say something about our privacy or how our data is going to be used. And, and sometimes there's actually a thing that we can read that says, you know, that's short enough that we can read about how our data is or isn't going to be used. But but basically, if there's four to 5,000 data points over at Cambridge Analytica on every single American, that suggests that maybe some of these covenants to whatever extent we do read them, aren't being honored. I I would agree with that. That's also part of the challenge. Uh, One of the things in the fine print that they often try to say is that they will um, share our data anonymously. So they will sort of take our name off of our data and then share it with third parties. And that's how they sort of justify it. And that's this idea that we get your data but protect your privacy by taking the name that your parents gave you off of it. But somehow or other, it's getting pinned back to your voter day, your your voter profile, right? Absolutely. That's what's so concerning is the company, among others, is de-anonymizing us uh, from those original privacy policy agreements. That's, no one expected that to happen. Uh, and it's um, very disturbing that that's happening, and, and that's part of why we're uh, trying to challenge it. All right. Unfortunately, we can only challenge it in Britain because the United States doesn't yet provide a means to do so. And I'm hoping also that this brings attention to the fact that we need to rethink our own data protection and privacy regulations. Are they capable of protecting us from international military contractors? No, uh, they're not. So we need better laws. And meanwhile, with your lawsuit, knowledge is power. We could at least maybe find out some of the things that have been done without our knowledge or consent. David Carroll, Associate Professor of Media Design at Parsons School of Design in New York. This story will go on and on and on. Thanks for joining us today for this part of it, though. Thanks for having me on. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. (laughs) If you feel weighted down now (laughs) with two very disturbing things that we've told you about, We're going to talk about sports now. Unfortunately, sports aren't the refuge they used to be, assuming they ever were a refuge from the cares of this world. They are over there waiting for you on the football field. I'm confident. 
with Kislyak. I don't recall. Lies and greed. When will they lead to all of his Russia ties? Oh, well, oh, well, oh, well, oh, well. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tony Romo. On tomorrow's show is Democracy Forever? Find out why, maybe not, with a show recorded live from Watkinson School. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, that's an all-star team uh, of uh, Bilal Siku uh, and Suzanne Bates and, of course, the great Bill Curry. Um, and we... We're calling it the great democracy suggestion box at the time. The whole idea is if democracy seems broken to you, how would you fix it? Uh, I'm not sure we came up with hard answers, but we did have a really interesting conversation. And we're about to have a really interesting conversation right now with um, Cindy Boren, a sports writer for The Washington Post. Um, Welcome to our world, Cindy Boren. Oh, my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. So, you know, let's start at the at the end of the story, and we can work backwards towards the beginning. And so people who listen to this show, some small percentage of them understand that I'm this really sort of, I have a problem. I'm a Packers fan, but I'm one of these kind of demented, oh. obsessive Packers fans who follows the team in the offseason and can name all 53 people on the roster. I'm that kind of Packers fan. So yesterday, uh, Aaron Rodgers, who's either one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time or a semi-divine being sent to us from a different part of the multiverse <laughs> or something, was tackled really hard. He broke his collarbone. Um, yeah. And immediately on Twitter, a lot of people started talking about Colin Kaepernick because you know, obviously the Packers are may need some quarterback help or or at least a quarterback backup. And interestingly, Aaron Rodgers has been one of the, you know, one of the few star football players really to to go long and loud about the fact that he thinks Colin Kaepernick, the guy who invented taking a knee uh, during the Star Spangled Banner, is getting a raw deal and being shut out of an opportunity to play football this year. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Colin Kaepernick was in the process of uh, announcing a lawsuit. Tell us about this lawsuit. Uh, the lawsuit uh, accuses NFL owners of colluding to keep him out of the NFL. Um, a few owners have spoken up and said that their fan bases probably wouldn't be thrilled with having Kaepernick on the roster. Um, John Mara of the Giants uh, famously said he'd heard heard more about uh, Kaepernick than anyone else. Uh, the Baltimore Ravens thought about it, but among others, Ray Lewis chimed in and talked to the owner about it. They backed off when Joe Flacco was hurt uh, during training camp. Uh, you know, I mean, Kaepernick, uh, on, if Kaepernick were, if his last name were anything else, um, you know, a Milwaukee kid, grew up in Wisconsin, he might not be a bad solution. Uh, someone who can, you know, move the ball with his, with his legs. Um, he can still play. He took a team to the Super Bowl. Um, and the Packers are going to bring in some quarterbacks this week uh, to look at. Um, it, you know, they don't know yet uh, how long Rodgers will be out. But, um, you know, I, Ordinarily, he'd be an ideal choice, but you know the Packers fans have been very conservative about the national anthem protest, and even when the Packers uh, urged the fans to join them by standing for the anthem and linking arms, fans booed. So you know, I, I'm not sure Kaepernick would find a home in Wisconsin. So meanwhile, uh, yeah, he's challenging basically uh, the behavior of the NFL in the light of a provision of the collective bargaining right. agreement that says you can't do this. You can't target a player. You can't do this. By the way, I think it's hilarious that Ray Lewis thinks that Colin Kaepernick is a problem. Was, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's just set that aside. Let's not even say another word about that. We'll no. just get in trouble anyway. <laughs> um, but um, 
But the problem, Cindy, is that he has to somehow or other, it's a subjective question, ultimately, you yeah. know? Two people could look at the same situation and go, well, no, Kaepernick, he was kind of one in 10 as a quarterback, you know, last time around, and, you know, and maybe he's not the right guy. It's hard to prove that you really rise above the common ruck of other people who might be considered. Well, he was um, he was coming off an injury and several surgeries uh, in, before the 2016 season. He was playing on a dreadful team, and I think he was playing for his probably third coach in three years, something like that. Um, he has was, had lost a lot of weight. wasn't really in great football shape shape at the start of the season. Played better as it progressed. Um, you know, I think. It, it, it's more a matter of all the, the quarterbacks that are getting signed ahead of him, you know, that you've never heard of. I mean, the, the Baltimore Ravens brought in two quarterbacks that no one had heard of when Flacco was hurt and taking a little rest during training camp. So I think that's more the question. It's like, wait a minute, this guy can get a job and he can't? And, you know, we'll see how his collusion suit goes. I mean, that's a tough road to that's a tough road to hoe. Um, I'm not sure he can prove that. It's that would be very difficult. But you know, at least he's trying. And of course, you know, if you're suing the owners, is that going to make an owner likely to bring you in and sign you? Hmm. Maybe not. Right. And um, also Except in Green Bay, where you know everybody's <laughs> an owner. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you know, Green Bay, of course, the only sort of commonly owned uh, owned sports franchise. Another reason it's a utopian world, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so it's not only the quarterbacks who nobody's ever heard of, but the quarterbacks who, whom people have heard of, but are named Jay Cutler. I mean, there are people who <laughs> you know who are who are well known who are also probably not as good as Colin Kaepernick. But I guess the other question, if you no, know, if I were arguing the owner side of this, and by the way, I'd be fine with Colin Kaepernick politics and all, uh, maybe especially because of his politics showing up in Green Bay, but maybe I'm not the typical fan. You sound dis- desperate, I think. Well, I'm anyway, the, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I used to hate him when he was really good and he played for San Francisco. No, I mean, and he, you know, he was. I mean, both of the guys who've, co- you know, Jim Harbaugh, who coached him in San Francisco, says nothing but great things about him. John Harbaugh, his brother, says great things about him. And yet, you know, the guy can't get a job. Right. And, and, uh, the other, I guess, what the owners would probably also say is, well, you know, I mean, why should I have to hire somebody my fans don't like? I mean, you know, if that's the real reason, is that a bad real reason? Yeah, you know, I mean, the bottom line is, let us never forget, it's a business, and it's their business. 32, uh, 31 guys own these teams, and, uh, you know, it's their business. They they feel that people would be um, canceling their season tickets, they would be boycotting the teams, you know, and, and the bottom line is, it's a distraction. And if there's one thing football coaches and football front offices hate more than anything else, it's a distraction. Um, you'll remember when teams were talking about whether to uh, draft Michael Sam, you know, right. the first openly gay player. Um, that was that was what everyone said, you know, well, we, we think he can play in the NFL. He couldn't, but we think he can play in the NFL, but it would be such a distraction. And football coaches hate distractions. Yeah, you know, although, not- so in that case, though, that was, not only was it bullcrap, but it was also... It was probably also illegal to say that. In other words, the people that I work with here, they couldn't refuse to hire a gay person because that would be a distraction. That's against the law to do that. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, but football coaches are so, uh, I don't know, and front offices are so regimented in their thinking that that's that's how it goes. And, you know, and that goes for owners, too. I mean, you know, you're looking at Jerry Jones, who's commanding his players to stand for the national anthem, or he'll, he'll bench them. 
But I mean, I think it's also, I think this distraction stuff about Kaepernick, I'm, not that it's not real and not that it doesn't reflect the thinking of football coaches, and it probably reflects the thinking of Mike McCarthy, so pretty conservative, narrow-thinking guy about a lot of this stuff. But it's sort of bullcrap, too, in the sense that, what, Ezekiel Elliott's not a distraction? Or like all the other people, Ray Wright, all the people who've had you know, terrible domestic violence allegations at them, people who've had rape charges thrown at them, people who've had drug violations. I mean, like, you know, every roster has two or three guys who can't start the season because they've got a four-game suspension for some kind of, you know, uh, uh, substance violation. I mean, how yeah. come those people aren't distractions? Exactly. Um, well, most of them are superstars. You know, Ezekiel Elliott certainly is. Uh, and there is, you know, there's a double standard at play there. Jerry Jones has been known to look the other way and enable players' bad behavior. He brought in Greg Hardy, you'll recall, um, when he was cut from the Panthers after a domestic violence um, incident a couple of years ago when the league was having all its problems with domestic violence and it's taking a PR hit every single day. You know, I mean, he brought Greg Hardy in, and finally it was such a disaster in the locker room that they had to dump him, but, you know, Jerry has been known to look the other way. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, um, as we wind up here, um, I mean, the other question we have to ask ourselves as fans, um, and, and the reason the work that you journalists, sports journalists do is important, too, is to what degree are we really going to hew to this notion that because football is this kind of sacred space that I go to uh, on Sundays or, and other nights of the week, uh, where I just you know sort of needed to exist a certain way, and it has to hew to certain standards that don't disturb me. I, like I don't want to have to stress about the question about whether my team is going to link arms or are they going to kneel or a couple of guys going to mm-hmm. s- sit on the bench. You know that I just can't handle that. I'm just too fragile. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's I just, sports. I've heard it a million yeah. times in the last two years. <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, what's your answer to that? I mean, I think fans need to be told to suck it up. Yeah, I think they do. Um, You know, I've been told so many times, stick to sports, don't get into politics. Well, you know what? We don't live in that world anymore. Maybe that world will come back uh, in another few years. But right now, that isn't the case. It's not the case with the NBA, where the NBA players have taken leadership on on some of these issues, um, much more so than the NFL players. And it's not going to come back with the NFL players. The owners and the players are going to try to come up with some, you know, meeting of the minds this week to, to move forward together. Right. Well, they told the Dixie Jicks to shut up and sing. Uh, now they're telling the athletes to shut up and run and throw and hit. Uh, well, we'll see. You know, I mean, they're supporting the uh, the Grassley-Durbin bill about uh, law enforcement uh, reforms. The NFL owners are. You know, maybe there will be progress there. Maybe they'll allow the players, like they did last year, to customize their cleats for a week, you know, with the cause, whatever cause is near and dear to your heart. It sounds like some kind of them. demented kindergarten somehow. But anyway, we have yeah. to stop there. Sydney Bourne, uh, you're great. Uh, Sports writer for the Washington Post. So uh, terrific to talk to you. And uh, thanks also to everybody else who, A, listened to the show today. And then the people who put it together, most especially Betsy Kaplan, who really puts it together. Thanks to Kion Wolf on the board, too. And we will be back tomorrow with that discussion about the future of democracy, which, based on everything that was said here in the last hour, doesn't really look all that great. I'm going to continue to stand with the people that are being oppressed. Uh, To me, this is something that has to change. And when there's significant change, and I feel like that flag represents what it's supposed to represent, and this country is representing people the way that it's supposed to, I'll stand.